It's with great anticipation and expectation that we return to our conversation of inspiration with Sir Tim Smith, the founder of The Eden Project. Raw, with unkempt honesty and truth, Tim shares his soul with us, and his letter to self is a truly magnificent insight into his visionary mind. From Eden, a feat of imagination and engineering with purpose, to tales of future truths and the absolute joyous explosion of now, Tim has an incredible way of making time stand still, allowing you to stop and consider your own sense of belonging and the power each of us have to be the change. This conversation was truly touching and one I feel so deeply humbled to have been part of. Tim shares his journey of passion, courage and self-belief and I'm delighted to bring you the rest of his story. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table and since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co., I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. I want to take a moment now to bring us up to the moment where Eden became. I was so lucky to visit Eden last October with my co-founders and it felt like this lost civilization. It was mind-blowing. Everyone should visit. And I know when you started that not everybody was quite as enthusiastic about this project as you were. And I read when researching you, there was this story that has entered Eden's creation mythology, the tale of the future truths. Now, I would love you to tell me, including that sort of Tinkerbell theory, about this adventure of Eden. Well, yeah, the future truths thing is to do with, I have always believed that the way to create wonderful things is to imagine what it looks like when it's finished and then work backwards mm. to work out what I must have done in order to get there. Because I've noticed an awful lot of people who have dreams then become casual about it and they just follow their noses and by the time they get halfway there, the dream has been modified to become something I'd be rather ashamed of as having a dream. You know what I mean? It becomes... Yes, watered down and fitted into boxes and Excel spreadsheets. Well, yes, but also a real dream, if you're working at scale, a dream has got to be populist in the sense that you've created a, you used the word mythology, but you've created a stage on which many, many people can see their lives playing out. The secret of a great adventure is that it mustn't be your great adventure alone. It must leave space for the spotlight to land on lots and lots of people. Mm. You must also distrust people who say, let's do this for the young. Let's do this for our children and our children's children. I really don't like people who do that because I've found in my life that most people who say, let's do this for our children and our children's children are people who just don't want to be of action and do it now. Do it for you. Do it now. Mm. Also, this whole youth stuff, youth is suffering so much. 
Yes, it is. It has always suffered. It has suffered probably since about 15,000 BC. Every generation has said the children suffer so much. We put our hopes in children. When I walk around in the areas we've got projects, we've got 17 projects around the world. Um, what kind of dog's that? Oh, God. I mean, Tim, this is all never happened. Just one second. That's a Oh, I love borders. Love borders. No, don't be embarrassed. That's <laughs> bloody recording. I'm just so embarrassed. Never has this ever happened. I normally just have a plain sailing time, but you're so magnetic. You're drawing Mercury forces here. So it's, 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 I never trust anybody yeah. that says, let's do it for the young. I never trust anybody who says, let's do it for the young and for our children and our children's children. Do it for you. Do it now. It's got an immediacy. Mm. The issue for our culture is that we have become a culture that has fallen in love with the anticipation of nice things in the future and the inability of appreciating the absolute joyous explosion of enjoying now this moment the coffee you are drinking the person you are currently talking to the flower you are looking at why is it that the silver embossed invitations to go to a party which of course i hasten to say arrive rarely in these parts but why is it that those parties by very definition are going to disappoint you you know they will disappoint you because they cannot live up to your expectation. You will savour what might happen on that day and you get there and you'll be one of several, several people and it will be dull as ditch water as everybody does their sort of masquerade of the, the great and the good. I think the most powerful force in the world is the force of the middle-aged disenfranchised whose hopes are behind them, who've lost the belief in the person they were when they were 19. Mm -hmm. If you can fire them up, if you can put a little bit of WD-40 into their carburettors, if that isn't a mixed metaphor, your listenership, if they've got this far, saying, the man knows nothing about cars, <laughs> that would actually stop the car dead. No, I tell you That's what... That's all right. You know I'd, a bit about other things. Yeah, well, you see, you see, you see, the really amazing thing I've discovered both at Ligon and at Eden is if you can take people over the age of 50 and tell them that the dreams of the person they were when they were 19 could come alive, this is the moment, this is the stage, you see those people come alive, you watch their shoulders go back a bit, and they would walk through coals with you. Mm. And that's how it is. And you know what? That passion rekindled in those people makes them the ideal mentors for the young people you then bring onto the project. And you see them bonding all over the place. That's why I often talk about a gang culture in a good sense, and people always say, oh, Tim, you shouldn't use the word gang. And I, I hate it. Why should other people populate a word which used to be nice and is now horrible because it's in crime and viciousness? Mm -hmm. Let's call it a group, a group. Yes. fired. And I think when we look around our country, you're looking at out of 68 million people, I bet you there are 30 million in this country waiting for the fire to be lit under the person they once thought they could be. And the problem is we're so ill-served by politicians who have no vision who are working, it's a cliche to say they work in the short term. I'm not even sure many of them would be capable of doing better if they had a long term. But the thing is that no one is saying to us, I have a dream of the Britain we could become. No, I know. You know, when we did this Brexit thing, I was a pro-Remainer, mm -hmm. right? I was a pro-Remainer. And then the TV interviewed me about, you know, why I was a Remainer. And it was a, the usual cliche-ridden debate where everybody trotted out their arguments and wasn't listening to anybody. And then they came back two years later and they said, what do you make of this Remain debate? I said, I'm so bored. Mm. I'm bored by you. Mm. I'm bored by the place. You just have never dared to ask the right question. 
you know, it was ITV, and they said, well, what's the right question? I said, there is only one question. The question you should have been asking people like me is what would it take to make you become a Brexiteer? That is the question. Yes. And the woman looked at me as if I'd slapped her with a cod. And I said, why don't you dare to ask me the question? And she said, what would it have taken to have made you a publicly argumentative Remainer be a Brexiteer? And I said, it's really simple. If someone had said we would slash various budgets, we would put it into the biggest investment in education our nation has ever seen. Yes. If you said to me, as an island, we believe that with the information of history, uh, we should not be dependent for anything which is vital for our survival from outside our shores, and therefore we ought to become food independent and energy independent. I'm yours. I'll vote for you. Gosh, yes. Why do people ask the wrong question? I mean, it's it's crazy. Of course I didn't want to leave Europe because I love the fact that we are Europeans and the cultural things are fantastic. But But the idea that this then becomes part of my tribal plumage is ridiculous. It's only tribal because no one asked the right questions. Why can't people say things like that? I want to ask you that question, actually, Tim. There's many people that I've interviewed on this podcast who, if I could, well, I say it to them, please go and sort this out. Please go and help the government with our inability to feed our children. Please go and help our government understand what we're doing to our British high streets. And each entrepreneur says, are you joking me? I do not have the time. I'm building what I'm building. It's going to help others. It's going to help the world. You know, this is what I can do. But there is no way that I would ever go into politics. And I want to ask you this question. What's going to happen? Is it a new party? What has to happen that people with genius, people with flair, adventure, uh, knowledge, expertise, like yourself, get to actually determine how our futures are going to be in this country. Those people who listen to this podcast will literally be saying to their, whatever they're listening on, why don't we hear more of Tim? Why aren't people speaking sense like him? And I know that's another big question, but I, I just have to ask because I'm so inspired with what you say. And yet, when I turn on the news, I'm so uninspired. Well, it was ever thus. Politicians have always been a disappointment because, you know, like Horace, my pig, politicians want to go to where the easy pickings are. They are very rarely policy wonks trying to change the world. Like a quiver of arrows, they have words like change, joined up thinking, you know, mm -hmm. um, we'll try and think the unthinkable. There's a whole thing. And you note the usual incompetence or mediocrity is an inverse relationship to the frequency with which they use those words. And my experience is that politicians follow the money on what are the successful views that the populace are espousing. I think the core of our problem isn't our politics per se. It is partially, but it's us. It's us. Mm -hmm. OK, I'll get on my soapbox for a minute and tell you something which is a real problem in our culture that we don't address. The most popular exhibit at the Eden Project is a very large billboard inside the visitor centre which says, if we could shrink the world to a village of 100 people. And everybody just looks at this thing and it just basically it tells you what ethnicities would be in that hundred it tells you the age mm -hmm. groups the mm. access i looked at that myself yes while i had my sandwich in your cafeteria yeah so the problem for us is that we've become weirdly supine 
Now, let's take our area. Let's, let's pretend you are where you are and I'm in Cornwall. Mm -hmm. What would happen if everybody in Cornwall, they made a list of everything we need? Like the village of 100 people, we need a couple of people to guard us from the wolves, don't we? Yep. We need a few people to look after us if we're sick, maybe someone to sweep the roads. And there's a whole list, isn't there, of the things that we, the citizenry, are prepared to pay for and that we will then employ to do jobs on our behalf because we haven't got the time. Now, when you add up all our requirements here in Cornwall, you will find that of the 530,000 people, there will be a number of people who've got very expensive medical conditions, but we want them to get better or to be in remission. We've got people who are dying. We've got people who are being born. We've got people who are doing all sorts of stuff. And you know what? When the government and the state can't pay, we say they are letting us down. They are always letting us down. Mm. They are the people who never know how to supply us with what we need. There's more crime on the streets. They should pay for more policemen. Well, what happened to being a grown-up? What happened? I mean, they should be all of us getting together, us, the civitas, the citizens, and saying we want all these things. And if we can't afford it, we either have got to collectively agree to more tax or we've got to ask ourselves, what can we do to take that bill down? Could we in the village of Lost Withiel agree that we are going to cut our hedgerows at a certain time of year, that we are going to do this? We're collectively going to have a drains day where we plunge the drains, you know, or whatever. I'm just talking like this because I think the great revolution that should be coming is not so much a new political party of people who just want to get elected to do something we know not what. The heart of all this isn't about left wing or right wing. It's about care for where you live and not passing on the responsibility for half of these things to other people. And the same covenant ought to exist with government itself. What is very odd is that we, the people of left-wing and right-wing persuasion are not telling our governments to stop people making things that either delete or seriously denude the commons. How is it possible that we the people allow or permission is allowed to be given to somebody to put ingredients into the water of our rivers, which belong to all of us, in such a way that not only do they make our riverways less fertile, but when the stuff washes into the ocean, it creates wastelands in the ocean. And when those wastelands get big enough, they stop absorbing carbon. When we pour too much crap on our fields to make them more fertile and we just put a bit extra on for effect and then it rains and this stuff doesn't go into the soil but it gets washed into the river, we get all these blooms. Who on earth said that was right? Yeah. Who on earth is saying this is right? And we've allowed ourselves to become tribal when there should be just a moral compass about the commons, that which belongs to all of us. The fact that I may have some land right? And currently the way we operate, I say I own it, but I do not have the right to put on it that which will then rush off it and go into the streams and poison things further down for my neighbours. Yeah. And I think part of the political problem we have created for ourselves, it goes back to this tribalism, but also goes back to us not looking at ourselves and, and asking ourselves, what does community mean? Mm. I see lots of people talking about the word community and it makes me laugh. They don't know where the word comes from. It comes from the Latin com, meaning together, munos, meaning in gift. Community is not a line on a map containing a number of citizens like a survey. It is about how many people are in relation, active, non-transactional relation to each other, contributing to each other, interdependent. 
And we've got to be far more muscular about demanding that we all, all of us, play a bigger social role. Here endeth the speech. <laughs> Thank you, because you're right. That's food for thought. It's to stop relying on other people and actually in our whatever 29,000 days on this planet to actually take hold and take some responsibility in our own actions, build community in the right sense of the word, where we actually have action ourselves rather than relying on others. As I looked at the business landscape, I realised there was so much wisdom out there which hadn't been uncovered. And yet, sharing it with the world would empower so many. It's why at Holly & Co, we have created a new world you can see, watch, read and listen to today. With a single aim, to support you as you navigate your own steps on your business journey. Bringing you advice and business inspiration like never before. The Advice Hub is a free online library, somewhere to go when feeling lost or needing some guidance. We delve into lessons learnt the hard way so you don't have to with these articles, written by myself alongside experts and other small business founders who share their own experiences. We cover everything from top marketing tips on how to increase your email subscribers to the truth behind working with your partner or how about overcoming parental guilt as a female founder, a subject I know will resonate. I'd love for you to go and experience it for yourself. So after this podcast, head over to holly.co and see what advice is most useful to you. And if there's something you'd like to see us cover, please do get in touch. Now let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. I want to go just back to Eden. It's regarded as the eighth wonder of the world. You've had 20 million visitors. You've boosted the local economy by 1.7 billion. It took two and a half years to complete. Opened in March 2001. It wasn't plain sailing in any way to get this up and running. That adventure in building it, now when you look back, what do you think is the greatest thing that Eden gives us? What would you say has been its greatest success? Well, we interrupted ourselves talking about future truths. Yes, and Tinkerbell. Well, Tinkerbell is simple. I believe in Tinkerbell because I believe that if you can get three people to believe passionately in something, the strength of that belief is far more than the power of three. And I can only say that from experience, and it, it's happened four times in my life, and it's been true four times in my life. Mm. The future truth bit is, I said we would build the eighth wonder of the world, and at a certain point, people stopped believing we weren't. <laughs> so we did. The best decision that we made in all of this was when we didn't have enough money, and somebody suggested the British way, should we cut everything just a little bit so we can afford it? And I said, no, let's kill an entire biome because who wants to come and see the second largest biome in the world? Mm. That was the best decision we ever made. Mm. Because once you've got the biggest biome in the world, there's no virtue in being the biggest, by the way. I, it's just as a selling point. Yeah. Once you've got that, you can then be successful and then build other things with your success. And you've got to sometimes understand what prejudicial investment is. It's actually investment where it's a ridiculous investment because it's front-loaded towards something and it isn't spread evenly but you do it because you expect it to be successful and if it's successful it enables you then to continue the spread but more behind the phrase of that mm. so 
the best thing about Eden in no particular order is it was built by ordinary people in ridiculous conditions. And we created life where there was no life. And we've given a shop window to the skills of humans to build something that is totally fit for purpose and not a monument to the vanity of architects. Mm. We have forbidden advertising because you should read Eden like a symphony of life, not as a selling opportunity. There's no advertising at Eden except over the beer handles, you know, to, just so that people know what they're all doing. Yes. So those are things I'm really proud of. I'm really proud of the fact that we pioneered, if you like, reverse engineered capitalism, whereby the most generous thing anybody's ever done to me professionally was I went to Ebu Vale in 1997 and I talked to the civil servants who had led the Ebu Vale Garden Festival, you know, one of those multi-hundred million pound projects. Yes. And they were so honest and told me everything they'd done wrong. And many of the things they'd done wrong were things that I would also have done wrong had they not given me guidance. Mm. And that enabled me to see that if you want to build something that has a really big impact in the community you're you're hoping to help, warn them a long time in advance and offer contracts a long time in advance so they can gear up to be ready for when you need them. Because the big problem in Wales was they gave them very little warning and it meant that almost all the money meant for Wales hemorrhaged out into England and Scotland because there was no time for people locally to gear up to do it. Right. And also, as a capitalist, it's really funny how you hear so many capitalists who say they know about business. Most of them know sweet Fanny Adam about business per se. If you want to help local suppliers and you think doing just-in-time ordering is good for business, think again. How can a small producer of any kind grow their business to supply you if they do not get given a long-term contract by you? Because if you don't give them a long-term contract, the bank will not lend them the money to grow, mm -hmm. which means they can't grow to meet your demand. And I'm really interested how the business world, the life world around our communities is so reflective of the biodiversity that we have in the soil and in our hedgerows. People just don't notice it. That actually, if you look after your neighbours, if you organise yourselves with your neighbours and see your role as being a wealth generator and creator, it is not only a noble thing, but it actually enables you to put down the real foundations for a culture and a commercial life that starts to drag hundreds and then thousands of people out of low expectation. And that of itself then excites people to believe in their own dreams. Mm. You asked earlier about how do people find their element? Well, our dear friend Sir Ken Robinson, who sadly died some weeks back, yes. um, that was his specialism and he was on our board. He would always say the biggest effort is to persuade people who are talented to stop believing that they are not talented. There are so many cases I can think of where negative people tell people the stories that why you believe something good will happen to you. And there are parts of this country which feel as if almost the land itself is haunted, covered by a pall of low expectation, as if people there will say to you, what makes you think, Sonny Jim, that anything good's going to happen to you? It won't. Hmm. I say kill negative people. Get rid of them. They are alien spawn. I will allow no negative people near me. Mm. But I feel so strongly about that. So the greatest things that Eden have done have to suggest the possibility of genuine regeneration and have liberated thousands of people to find their element and created a place which is not as good as everybody says it is. We are fantastically overrated because so many places are much worse than you think so that we look so good. <laughs> 
We're about to have a revolution at Eden in terms of where we're going. Now, that is going to be very interesting, Eden 2.0. We're going to build the Emergence Academy, which is going to be unique, and it's going to be rocking. Rocking. Tell me, tell me, has that been born out of COVID? Because obviously the impact has just been insane on so many so many businesses. And yet, actually, there's been some positive in terms of watching consumer behaviour, the conscious consumer, all these sorts of things that I'm praying is here to stay. 2.0, has that been born out of this time? Well, it has really. Let me take you back to what was my advice for people about doing adventures. The thing I didn't say, but should say, is that Many people are clever. Most people are pretty clever. That's what Homo Sap is, you know, a clever ape. Mm. And they spend an awful lot of time busking in their jobs. They know they're clever so they don't have to stretch themselves. What the Lost Gardens of Heligan did for me was it provided me with the first time in my life a stage where I was going to try and be as good as I could be. And if I failed, it would simply be because I wasn't good enough and I then needed to learn something because it would not be for lack of effort. All I can say to anybody still listening is that my life experience is that from the moment I decided to trust my instincts, which is when I came to Cornwall, from the moment I decided I was going to work without trying to be a busker, I have slept well and every dice I roll in terms of my career choices has been a six because I'm just believing in where I want to go. And I don't have doubt because the judgment I'm making is about whether I believe it or not. And I am the best person to judge that, am I not? Mm -hmm. So that's how it came. So when you say, did Eden 2.0 come out of COVID? Yes, it did, because I've been promising myself to read a whole range of books. My bedside table was actually a health and safety nightmare. The books <laughs> were so high that if, they'd, if they had toppled... While you were asleep. There was never going to be a 2.0. I could have been buried in letters. <laughs> yeah. So uh, one of the books I read was called Op An Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth, written by the great Buckminster Fuller, who was a philosopher and architect who'd invented the geodesic dome. And in it, he talks about taking a place and treating it as if it's a spaceship. In his case, it was Earth, and realising there is no other place like this. So what do you do to make it all operate brilliantly? And I read this book, and it was written in 1969, and it read today as clearly and freshly as if it was written today. My goodness. And I started thinking about it, and I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote about the influence on me. And I said to my colleagues, you know what? We're going to go extreme. We're going to go commando. We're going to turn Eden into a circular economy. We're going to make our waste, all our waste products are going to go circular. We're going to use our human waste, and we're going to use our water systems to filter and we're going to create 200 tons of fish and prawns. We're going to create the ability in warm greenhouses to grow up to 40% of our vegetables, saladings, herbs and spices. We're going to continue with our grand project to drill five kilometers towards the center of the earth and we're going to bring up hot water. That begins in January. So we will have more hot water than we will know what to do with. It will heat us all and it will provide all the energy we need. And it will also feed all those greenhouses so we can grow and grow and grow. Abundance will be our name. Mm. Then we're going to cover all our car parks in solar. 
and we've got a partner who's going to do that. We're going to be so damn carbon positive that if you wanted to visit us from Venice, from Venus, not Venice, from Venus, you'd still be carbon positive. That has then led to a whole lot of stuff about the analysis of the soil. So we're going to maximize the biodiversity, the biomass that's being grown, the soil fertility, the chemical compounds of the soil. We're going to make sure that our worms are really, 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 really happy. And you know what? You're going to find that it's going to become really carbon sequestering. We're going to tell our visitors that did you know that in Roman times the carbon in the soil was literally double what it is today and that by recarbonizing through vegetative insertion into the soil we can get back to that that if we were able to clean our water and then clean our soil and make it maximally fertile we can get back to 350 degrees the solution to the future of humanity lies in just growing up becoming good citizens and making plain the difference between being a good or great citizen and a simple pig at a trough consumer. And there it is. That's Eden 2.0. It's going to rock. Wow. I just, I just, I want to cancel every meeting I have. I want to actually cancel the whole week. I just want to sit and just replay your words over and over again. This is just going to be incredible to watch this next adventure. And as you said, it's going to be a magnet. It's going to be people will be able to see, taste, feel, have an immersive experience of what you're putting across, what it's got to be like. And until people see it, sometimes they can't believe it. And that's what you're going to do for us. You know, as if you haven't done enough. But you know why? Tell me. Because a very clever man called Howard Dryden, who is working out our sewage system, he worked out that with 1.1 million visitors a year, which is what we get, and 365 days at 24 hours a day, that is the equivalent of a town of 10,000 people, mm. which means that if we can make Eden very light on the soil and then build a platform which we will promise that we will not own we will just curate it mm -hmm. and we say to people steal with impunity and give with joy if we can do that we can build systems that other people can copy ever more cheaply to make sure that what we're pioneering as a group mm -hmm. of people as a society mm -hmm. gets put in place as quickly as possible Oh, we were lucky that we all had you, by the way, Tim. This was uh, an amazing thing to have this interview. And for anyone who is listening, I'm sure shares my view that this is potentially one of the most life-changing interviews I've ever had the pleasure of doing. So I thank you. Um, I'd love to talk to you forever, but I end all these interviews with the analogy that running your own business or for you, literally changing the world is like an epic roller coaster. And I'd love to ask you on these adventures that you've been on, tell me a low. Tell me when, when you didn't think things were going to go your way. A low? Ah, I don't do lows. My problem is there are obviously the bereavements in one's life, yes. so we will cancel those out. I think the greatest lows you have are actually to do with embarrassing yourself for lowering the standards you've set yourself and having told a fib or they're those kind of human things where you just dwell for a long time. I'm actually about to talk about that in our letter, but okay. I actually do believe that people erode themselves by letting themselves down. I could tell you a low of the whole hillside in the Eden Project falling down 
and thinking that we were screwed. Tell me. But the truth was, it became a high. Yeah. Because Jerry O'Leary, the project director, said to me, do you trust me? And I said, I've got no choice. And he then produced the greatest industrial choreography you've ever seen mm. to rebuild the hillside. And it became a monster high. Mm. So, you know, what can I say? So that would be my low. My low is is letting yourself down. And conversely, do you have a greatest high? Oh, yes. Yes? Okay. You know I do. <laughs> it was a night in 1989, in November. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad you're going to talk about this. The snow was horizontal. It was 2am. And under a red glowing heat lamp in fresh hay, 18 inches deep, Doris gave birth to 11 baby piglets. Oh. And I know I should say the birth of my children or things. I'm just assuming that listeners will <laughs> will forgive me for not saying that. But it was biblical to me. It was biblical in terms of a smile so wide it hurt my jaw. Oh. And I'll remember it forever because my smile actually, it was the sort of smile which actually has in it a horrible frustration because you want the entire planet to be standing next to you sharing that moment because you know that will be hardly anybody there, yes. you know, that won't be joyous. So that's my high. Tim, it's been one of my greatest honours to have this conversation with you today. And I told you before the interview, you're a real hero of mine. And now well, you have just blown that right out the park. I mean, I, I don't actually know how to cope with this interview. I know that listeners won't either. And I, I would love to ask you, because at this point in time, I would ask, if you would possibly do us the honour of reading a letter that you've prepared to your younger self. And I also want to thank you for giving us such great time today of your, I'm sure, very busy planning of Eden 2.0, but also for sharing a little bit of your soul with us. It's been a huge honour, Tim. Well, it's been a pleasure being with you too. Thank you. So the, the letter that I'm going to read, uh, there will be little bits of it that you will have had rehearsed in the interview simply because my life does weave like that. Are you ready? I'm so ready. Dear me, everyone writes letters to their younger selves telling them to seize life at every moment and live it to the full, to be kind, honest, loyal and true and to work hard. Take it as a given. I want what's best for you, except I always wonder whether a tough childhood gives you better stories or a deeper artistic well from which to draw. But as it is me I'm writing to, I just hope you had a happy time and you have a happy time as you can muster. And now for my advice. Firstly, don't waste a single minute of your life working to be the person your parents want you to become. They know nothing. And when you get to their age, you will see quite how little idea they had. Secondly, shun negative people. Let them nowhere near you. They're alien spawn. They are a cancer on your hopes and will haunt you with their own warped imposter syndrome, hoping you can fail like they will. Show them no mercy. Believe passionately that there is no barrier to you doing anything you can set your heart on. That is to say, don't set your heart on being a surgeon if you faint at the sight of blood or climbing Everest if you suffer vertigo and so on. And then thirdly, lose your fear of being disliked. So many people live lives crippled by shyness and an inability to ask for what they want or need, or fear telling a truth that will cause them to be disliked. The cost of not losing it is that you will forever be in chains to relationships that do not nurture you, 
All I can tell you from experience is that if you have the nerve to tell people that they are disappointing you or behaving improperly, your relationship changes with them. There is nothing unsaid and things will change for the better. Fourth, always be trustworthy. You get measured by your word and trust is the most powerful currency there is. Everything I've done as I got older has been built on persuading people it was fun and worth working with me. Think big. There's plenty of time to think small when you're old and dribbling. People are attracted to big, and it means you have a stage to share with others. I won't bang on about many other things you need to make your own mistakes, and they're mostly fun. Come to think of it, make loads of mistakes. You'll notice as you get older that all the funny stories you have to tell are about things that fail. No one wants to hear the stories of your success. People can't help it. It's human to take a weird pleasure in the misfortune of friends. Be self-deprecating and revel in your mistakes and turn them into an art form. Now, on to the serious stuff. There are two things you must promise me you will do. Promise? When older people tell you not to bother or remark that you probably do not have time to come round, beware. The greatest regrets of your life will be the memories of older people you loved but were too busy to fit into your life. Be selfish. Go visit them. Call regularly. Why? I'll tell you why. When you get older, you don't regret the deals you didn't make, the lovers you didn't take, and so on. Half as much as the painful rugby ball kicked into the ball's deep ache of the oldsters you didn't find the time to see. And then? They died. And you will never have the chance again. For the rest of your life, you will be haunted by the shame of your selfishness, your egocentric blindness. That the reason they didn't bother you was because they didn't want to burden you with obligation. It didn't mean they didn't desperately want to share in the pleasure of sharing your life. Always remember that. Lastly, and on a merrier note, comes my tip for life. <laughs> be aware that most middle-class people do not actually think. They do A-levels and degrees, but are mostly after wearing the clothes of intelligence. Few in my experience think. As they are lazily contented to read a few articles to inform themselves of this or that, hoping that no one else in their circle will have read them, so that they may appear informed and thoughtful. There is one description no man can withstand, and that is being called a thought leader. They feel like a cat being stroked. This is the accolade of choice. Go think. Go read. Be curious in everything. Don't let people steer you to study science or humanities. Study everything. Savour everything. And learn to see a bigger picture. The choice I have made is that I accept every third invitation I receive, unless it clashes with a family commitment. Only in this way can you put your life in social jeopardy. Only in this way can you meet the miracle people, the people you didn't know you needed to meet. This is where magic lies, and in my life, every life-changing meeting has taken place in this place. It is here, my young friend, that you learn the truth of that marvellous Irish saying, Random meetings are dancing lessons from God. Remember this even in the darkest time, and who knows what could turn up. Go well, go safely, and develop a profound sense of ridiculous, and love wholeheartedly. You'll find laughter will be your friend. Till later. Oh.
don't know if I can speak. <laughs> don't know how I feel so lucky to have had this moment with you, Tim. It's my pleasure. Just, you can get lost in your world of building and being a founder and an entrepreneur, whatever you want to call it. And you sort of lose sight of maybe who you are and... And I feel like this interview and maybe for other people who are listening, your sense of belonging to your adventure and your your words have just truly touched me. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for your time today and for sharing just beautifulness. That's all I could say. Thank you, Tim. My pleasure. <laughs> oh, Tim, that's it. That's a wrap. My God. <laughs> You've totally killed me. Well, that, that wasn't the intention. <laughs> I know, but you have. Oh, I admire you so greatly. Thank you for your time today. Oh, gosh, so sorry. No, that's all right. That's, that's all right. It's very flattering. And I hope um, that the plague days will leave us behind. And, we can uh, meet in person. And, and in due course, yes. We'll I would meet love to, and I promise not to cry on you then. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you everything, Tim. Please go and sock it to everybody, won't you? There's only one of you, and I've never had the honour of meeting someone like you, so please show us how to do it again. Well, let's hope I won't be the massive disappointment you've now set me up to become. <laughs> <laughs> if you have enjoyed this episode with Sir Tim Smith, I'd love to suggest listening to my conversation with Dame Stephanie Shirley. You can find any of my past episodes by searching Conversations of Inspiration wherever you get your podcasts. And if we've helped or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support really does mean the world to me. It helps spread the word and will inspire more people to build a life they love. And for all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.